Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung and Val Matthews. This podcast is brought to you by Plan Academy. Plan Academy is the world's leading learning site for anyone working in construction, project management, or project controls. At Plan Academy, you learn construction, planning, and scheduling theory, how to master scheduling software like Primavera P6, and even advanced construction scheduling techniques. Plan Academy's courses are 100% online and at your own pace. You can learn at the office, at site, from home, anywhere. Check out planacademy.com today for free sample lessons and tons of free video. Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by JustDo.com. JustDo is a great business and project management tool we've been using here at Project Chatter. I agree, Val. I like to keep things simple and JustDo is perfect for that. But I do know it's got a lot of powerful functionality as well. And one of my favorites is the task-specific chat. Absolutely. And for all you slackers, don't wait for Monday. Check out JustDo.com. Now on with the pod. Hello, project people, and welcome to the Project Chatter podcast. I am Val Matthews, and I'm joined by my co-host, Val Fung. You are Val Matthews, in case you forgot, so that, that's great for confirming. But hi, folks. Hi, everyone. I'm extremely excited um, to have uh, the return of our guest from season one, Val. That's right. In this episode, we get to talk to Marco Frisender again. Um, thank you for returning and coming back to join us, Marco. How are you, mate? Absolutely fine. Thank you very much. Very excited for this one. So looking forward to it. Me too. Me too. On this pod, we get to heard. What's a pod? On this pod, know. we get to chat to Marco about the good, the bad, and the ugly of PMO. So this one is bound to be a well, bound to be an interesting one for anyone in the PMO space. Uh, but before we do, here's Dale with a quick bio on Marco. Cheers, Val. So very quick one um, on Marco. Marco studied engineering at the university at university in Italy. He is PMP certified and holds an executive MBA. He's currently studying construction law. He has worked all over the world for a number of multinational companies in many project roles from project director to general manager of the PMO. Marco has also held a role as professor of electrical engineering, and he's currently the head of planning at Transport for London. So shortened version there, Marco, because as we've mentioned, you've uh, joined us already in season one. And uh, if people want to hear the full version, which I think they should, because it's an amazing bio, um, it's yeah. episode 18. So go back and have a listen to that, folks. But as Val says, thank you for joining us. Uh, how are you feeling second time around? Oh, absolutely. I'm feeling very charged for the episode. <laughs> charged is great, a great place to be. I mean, if we're going to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly, you want to be charged for that. Um, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But... Just listening back to your first pod, we spoke a lot around planning. Um, who can forget your definition of you know, what a planner is, a project manager that looks after time. That was fantastic. Um, and we also spoke about um, what makes a great planner. We spoke about all sorts of things. We, sp so we spoke about uh, resource leveling versus resource smoothing. And we spoke about global PMOs, et cetera, et cetera. But 
One of the things that we alluded to and we, we've done on a few pods already and we haven't really spoken about was we, we've often said, you know, the project fails often before it's even started. Um, and that refers to perhaps project initiation, p- perhaps before that even, um, maybe in the bid phase, even maybe in the business case. <coughs> um, and that got me thinking, how much of the time do PMO people, whether that's controls or planning or risk or anyone, get involved in those phases? Uh, in my experience, not a lot. I don't know if you've encountered where they, you know, we have been involved in those early phases and perhaps have a view on if we should be to better assure that the project is successful, successful when it does land. Yeah, well, absolutely. You're absolutely right. I mean, the, especially, well, especially even in the pre-bid phase, uh, when when you start to look, you know, when you go for the bid no bid meeting in a sense, so the the real starting point, there is not much of the PMO involved. Um, actually, I must admit, I never seen the PMO involved at that stage because it's more involved by the by the strategy team, which is looking for the projects mm. uh, to do. Uh, now, a lot depends if you are a client side or if you are a contractor side. Um, because client side, most probably there is no PMO involved. For the contractor, it might, because obviously you have a scope or you start to, to talk with the, with the client about a certain project, and that's where you start to have a scope. But I think where many times, I mean, I say now we fail, but they say the projects fail at the very beginning, is because the people which are looking at, you know, at Packaging the project before even it lands is more sales oriented in a sense. So they are much more interested in, you know, keeping the cost down or uh, meeting a certain uh, a certain target in terms of uh, of time. If this time is then related to a schedule to which which enables you to achieve it, uh, that's sometimes <laughs> where the problem starts. <laughs> I mean, how many times I've experienced many times they are giving me a project. That, you look at the duration and you look at the cost and you say it's impossible. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, you already start. Now, there are certain times that this is done on purpose. If you want to enter into a market or if it's, a, you know, there is a political reason that you want to have this project or do this project. I can remember, for example, sometimes when you want to put into, into operation when I was in, in power, a new, a new turbine or a gas turbine, you probably you know, reach a certain agreement in doing it under cost in order to make sure that you can run the, the, the turbine. So there are sometimes quite good, uh, good reasons, but sometimes it's just plain simple, you know, focus on sales, uh, trying mm. to be the lowest bidder, shortest time, and then somebody in execution will sort it out. This you hear many times. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the reason. That's the reason why PMO, many times, one of the roles of the PMO is also to, to try to see what is the difference between the as sold, let's say the, the part which was sold, and then what actually in execution has changed, which is then driving the cost sometimes. And I can tell you, 90% of the time, it, I mean, you can't say a number, but 50% is actually normally related to <laughs> costing or timing which was done just to get the job. And, you know, if you would look at it a little bit more specifically, uh, I mean, everybody with a little bit of experience could say, yeah, 
we will have a claim or we will try to get an extension of time. That's, you know, there are then different cultures uh, where, you know, you go low because you try then to get to the, to the correct price via, yeah. via variation orders or claims or whatever. Or it's just plain simple um, trying to get the job independently if you can do it or not. That's often the case. Yeah, I've, I've seen that as well. And I'm sure Val, you've seen too where it's a strategic oh, yeah. decision you know, to go in yeah. low um, yeah. and even sometimes make a loss because of the follow-on work or maybe the maintenance work um, as yeah, you're alluding the, to. Yeah, the problem is that the P, you see the PMO should, you see, if it's done in the correct way, and when I say the correct way, I mean you have involved the, the PMO, you have an ERS, sorry, a, a, a lessons learned or a database or something, and you know that this project should be done in, I'm just saying, two years and on a cost of 100 million, and you say consciously, okay, I'm going to go lower because of X, Y, Z reason, that's perfectly fine because you already know where you have to put your effort during execution. But if you just do it, how can I say, I don't want to say just that <laughs> feeling, but my point is if you do it without really knowing what you're doing, that's where the first problem starts because when, you, when this is handed over to the execution, where then you have the PMO, the, the, the setup and everything, this is starting to create huge problems already from the beginning because you will not have enough you know, money for, uh, for the setup of the people uh, or for many other things that actually should be done in order to correctly set the project. And for me, the setup of the project is one of the first things that you should get it right because otherwise you will fail. And you have countless examples of projects which fail not because the project is a failure, but it's because it's set it up in the wrong way. Or so how, how, how do we stop this? How do we say, right, you have to involve us earlier to give a little bit more um, consistency to deliver your a, a bit more assurance? Because it, as you say, if it's strategic, where we're going in knowing that we, you know, not necessarily going to make profit or whatever the case may be, specifically if you're a contractor or subcontractor, um, then that's fine. But as you say, if, if you're going in on a whim or just because you want to, you know, be the lowest bidder and get the sale, that's not actually best case for anyone, whether you're the contractor, subcontractor, or, or even the client suffers from that a lot, right? Because if your tactic is then to base it on, well, we'll go off to variations, um, that creates a big administrative burden um, on both sides as well. So in fact, your costs go up too. So it's, it's a bit like, okay, let's kick the can down the road, but actually we don't know how much that can is going to cost us. So it's, a, it's very risky um, to do that. Uh, but anyway, that, that's just my view on it. Val, I don't know, do you have a, a view? Yeah, we, we've talked about this a few times when you get to the bid stage and then there's this BAFO, best and final offer, and then kind of all logic and reasoning is thrown out the window. And it's not always that they, they take time off or they take cost off. Sometimes they omit some level of the detail, which is a risky point as well. So they'll just alleviate some of the stresses by not submitting, you know, the most comprehensive bid. They'll, they'll submit what they can get away with, I guess, in a way. Um, I'm not sure if PMO would, would really do any good there. I, I certainly think project controls would help because um, we talk about, this, this carryover, and you mentioned it, Marco, around if you had a benchmark, if you, if you knew what you were actually bidding against and you had some type of 
reference or comparative, then that's fine. And you want to take some conscious decisions to reduce time and cost, that's absolutely fair because you've got something to back it against. Um, and I guess that's where project controls could be really valuable is that, that that lineage between the work breakdown structure and how estimations are captured and the format and the methodology of how you capture those bases of estimates and then flowing that into some type of integrated uh, integrated system would be brilliant. You know, even if the estimates are wrong, at least they're, there's some type of carryover the story and the general understanding of where it's coming from is there. It, that's, that's my view anyway. Well, the, now that's interesting because I agree that the physical presence of a PMO or a PMO representative in whatever type, being it project manager or being project control, would help. But I think the PMO is still quite important because if the PMO normally is doing his job, which part of his job should actually be creating the databases for, you know, mm-hmm. re- future reference of duration of uh, uh, rates uh, of, you know, political or geographical uh, informations, what we call the, the lessons. I call it ERS, but it's basically a lesson learned database. That's one actually of the core thing that normally the PMO is doing because it's part yeah. of the core business that it does. So if, if the PMO is set up correctly and is doing this part, then in a sort of a, of a not a direct way, but the indirect way is helping this, this first part. So I, yeah, I, 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 don't, yeah. I can't see a PMO person really helping at that stage, apart from probably having, I don't know, one specialist or you know, somebody, somebody from project management looking at as a third eye looking at what they are doing. But I think it's the, it's the setup of the PMO within the company that if he does his mm. work correctly, that benefits then the first part or the starting point of a project. Yeah, so you're, what you're saying is even before the bid, you know, you need PMO in there and they should have access to uh, previous or similar projects and then can provide some type of advisory throughout the bid section and then make sure things are set up for success when you do win the bid. The, the tricky part with a bid is you don't know if you've won it yet. So how much do you sink into it? And they're very usually, it's a, it's a fine line of how many people you can have within a bid team um, and it depends, obviously, complexity, the size of the, the, the company, the size of the project, the risk of the project. Um, well, that's, you're hitting exactly my point. So in order to avoid, or sorry, in order to make sure that you don't enter into this part, because you can't go too deep at the beginning. Of course, now there are projects that probably you know that you are, you are uh, going to win or you have high chances, so you can put probably a little bit more of effort. But others, mm. you're right, you don't know. But if you set it up correctly, in reality, all this information are available because if you have this, and, and we are living in an era where data is, can be stored you know, everywhere. And let's be honest, when you go for a bit, even the schedules, so sorry if I go back to planning one second, but even the schedules <laughs> are on a very high level and they normally take into consideration the long lead items, they take into consideration the big, uh, uh, you know, interfaces that you have. And then it's quite easy to see. I mean, I remember some of our benchmarking when I was in power was, for example, duration between when we had the first drawing of the piling up until when we finished, for example, the power island, and then the duration for the commissioning. So at that level, if the informations are available, you can benchmark quite easily. And mm. it gives you a rough idea. 
And then clearly, when, when the bid evolves, you know, you have your discussion, you do your things, you can then obviously go more in detail, but it, it's still a big help. Eh? And, and believe me, everybody has uh, or is prizing themselves that they have a fantastic database with all, all the information. <laughs> but I, I've yet to see a proper process during bid, which actually says, go and check, please, <laughs> you know, if your durations, if your data or what you are presenting or packaging is actually something which is in the ballpark that we have already seen. Yeah, Val, Val, if I add to that as well, your comments on, well, you know, how much do you throw into that bid team because you don't know if you've won it or not yet. What happens when, you know, you have the football World Cup or the Rugby World Cup or the Cricket World Cup? You know, you don't know if you're going to win it yet, but often the best teams and the teams that win it are the ones that throw everything in and are well prepared. You know, they've covered all the bases, they've looked at everything, they've got everything from the sports psychologist all the way through to the nutritionist and, you know, they've, they've done the work. So that would be my argument to say, well, why wouldn't you then take the same approach for a bid? To say, if you really want to win this, let's cover all the bases, you know? Well, the, the counter to that is, you know, if you're a player and you're on a team and even if you lose, you get paid. Um, so with the bid, you know, if you don't win the bid, you could potentially not get, you know, you, you might not be able to continue employing a whole bunch of bid people. So it's a, it's a bit riskier than a, a sports game, but, but the, the concept's the same. Yeah. You want you want everyone to have the, the same ideology to go out and win the bid, and this is perhaps part of the, the corruption in, in the in the schedule integrity and the cost integrity is because everyone's so geared in the bid team to win, yeah, and they'll do whatever they need to do to get it across the line, and then you know lovely folks like yourselves pick up the uh, you know the delivery schedule and you go what the hell is this thing, and you end up spending a whole bunch of time unpicking. So maybe there's a medium somewhere where. Maybe it's change control or some level of understanding or rationale or when you make a decision in the bid in the heat of the moment, it's captured somewhere. Would that would that help you think, Marco? I, I think look, I think at that stage everything helps in a sense. But again, and and it, it sounds like uh, people which know me can go crazy because it seems like I'm a I'm a process. Uh, driven actually i'm not but there are a couple of processes which normally if you follow them uh, can help and my point is very simple going back also to the to the winning team or not you are not not covering the basics so the basics you are covering of course you're covering that's the reason you go to a level which enables you to cover the basics can be you know depending if it's a civil project if it's a rail project or an oil and gas project doesn't really matter the basics are there so you will have the key things there. You will have the interfaces. You will have the, you know, the long lead items. So the ones which from a schedule perspective are there or even the cost, the high cost or the high value item there. So the basics are there. The problem is not having the basics there. The problem is then making sure that once you have covered the basics, that you can somehow have an idea without having to go into all the details because you don't want to, as we said before, you don't want to spend money and having people mm. calculating something that probably you're not going to win. But, you know, still you have something that you can compare against, which can give you a confidence level um, to say, okay, we are, we are in the ballpark and everything is covered. The tragedy, I mean, the tragedy, the problem is that the basics are always covered because let's be honest, companies are quite good in covering the basics, especially during the bid. But what is mathematically and each time missing is then a complete understanding if once 
if these basics that you have put there are actually correct for that type of project or for that type of region or for that type of contractor, whatever it might be the case. And I think that's where the crack comes in in the first place. Mm. Everybody, you know, every, com- I mean, I can, I can cite you numerous projects and numerous companies where the basics was perfect. We didn't miss or they didn't miss any interfaces. They didn't miss any big item. What we missed was, um, so let me make an example. What we missed was, for example, the monsoon season. If we would have just gone into other projects, no, you're laughing, but it, it seems something stupid. Yeah, no, it's, it seems, it seems but obvious. It, yeah, but I get exactly, it, yeah. but it's actually, you know, if we just would have looked at a couple of other projects in, uh, that we had already done, because by the way, we had done some of the projects, we, somebody would have said, oh, the monsoon season. I mean, but this is just a very stupid example to say, you know, there are quite key things which just making a very high level comparison, which doesn't cost you much in terms of man hours to do, but increases mm. the confidence of what you're doing. Yeah. 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 And um, Val and I have had, uh, uh, you know, Dev and uh, Dan Patterson on previous pods. And this is what those guys are doing. They're using the likes of your machine learning and historical data to better inform future projects. And I think it's great because I think what you're alluding to there, Marco, is you've got the data sometimes, but just being human, either we just forget or it's just an oversight of things like that. Um, and this is probably the bit where computers can come in and help us because um, yes. there's so much the volume of Definitely. data and information out there. So, so, but as we are today, that isn't common practice, right? Um, and so it's important that we make this known on platforms like this, that this still happens today until it's widely used that there's this huge database and that will help us deliver projects better because we're taking more considerations. We have to rely on people. And that's where I think the PMO should give a big help because you see, Mm. I make another example. There is also a slight problem in the databases. Imagine how many data you have in these databases. You can have scheduled data, you can have performance data, you can have cost data, you can have... uh, um, you know, um, run rates data. You can have everything. If this database is just held and not, let's say, framed from a, I'm saying PMO because PMO is the project management office. So the one which should have or has, not should have, has the knowledge of the projects, which can frame the database in the correct way in order to make it easy to find the information. Because I've witnessed some databases where I knew exactly it was there because it was one of my old projects and I couldn't find the data I was looking for and it wasn't in the database. So sometimes the problem is also how you, you know, this data, I don't know how to put this, but it's, there are so many data and you can't just go in and say, uh, you know, like, please give me the run rates, which was for the contractor X in project Y because this query are, sometimes not supported. So my point here is PMO should actually uh, give the framework on how this database is set so that the correct information can be extrapolated easily. Because the moment you have something, even if it's fantastically with everything inside, but it's difficult to extrapolate the information, human nature, (laughs) laziness sets in and you just forget about it and probably you go to, to... you know, to your neighbor or to your fellow project manager and say, hey, do, what do you think? 
don't get me wrong, it's a good thing to ask, but at the, at the same time, if you have a database, it's a waste of time and money. Yeah, I was just going to add to that. I was researching this presentation for the Project Controls Expo, which you guys are also speaking at, the virtual one. Yep. And uh, I came across a quote that summarizes that really well. It says, you can, have, you can have data without information, but you can't have information without data. And uh, it's such a great quote. I, I can't remember who said it, but uh, I'll, I'll bring it up soon. And what, the, what, what I clearly understand what you're coming from. It's like, well, PMOs kind of shape-shifting now into this um, data management role, which kind of was our responsibility, but it's not really been defined as our responsibility, not, not in the organizations that I've worked at. Maybe it's different for you, Marco, but we're kind of moving into that custodian role of data quality and integrity, which makes sense. We should be there. Um, but also some of the digital engineering pieces. We talk about BIM. And we've got a few guys coming on to talk about BIM soon and how that's moving into our sphere of basically recognizing that data is the next key kind of um, asset within a project organization and we need to manage it. From what you're saying, we don't need, just need to manage it for this project, but for all the successing projects that are like this one, that data is important. It's a currency that we require for a successful bids in the future or to be competitive in that, in that regard. Is that, is that your point as well? Does that kind of summarize it well? Uh, absolutely, because, <clears throat> because I think that the, the PMO is shaping now into, into something much more complex than it was before. So before it was seen, literally, what, what the term says, project management office. So basically, you were having people which were experts or, you know, uh, good knowledge of project management, and they were helping projects in whatever type during execution, especially. Now the PMO is getting a much wider um, view of, of the business. And it's not only on the project itself, but it's also on how the business can actually run smoother thanks to the PMO. Um, and then clearly the data set that you have is becoming more and more important. Data is not the problem today. We can have data from everywhere. Uh, I think I, I even said this uh, already sometimes, but the data itself doesn't tell you anything. You need to make sure that somebody which has knowledge of the project, because let, let's be honest, if you take somebody which doesn't have a knowledge of the project, even if it's a fantastic programmer of databases, for example, he will never be able to come up with what is actually the information that the project needs, because who best than the PMO can actually frame this in the correct mm -hmm. way? And that's where I think the PMO has also to, to learn a little bit because I don't think at present time many are actually geared to do this. So we are still in the, in the I don't want to sound negative, eh? but we are still a little bit in the, in, in more in the older way of looking at the PMO where you have you know, the project management, you have the project controls, uh, the risk. But now if you start to put into, into context also the data, how to use this for uh, reporting, for example, at different levels, because that's the other part. It's not anymore only on the projects. Now you start to report also performance for business purposes. So it, it, it's getting also on a higher level, more strategic mm -hmm. level. That's where I think the PMO needs to, to become much more, uh, in, uh, I don't know the English word, but much more precise and much more uh, knowledgeable on this on this uh, on this part yeah i agree with what you both are saying um i just want to add to i guess what val was saying that we you know it's both of you alluding to that we're moving towards this data side i my view is that we've always been there 
we just haven't had computers and big data involved as much as before. It was much more reliant on individuals and their knowledge and experience and the data they've accumulated rather than having this massive pool or lake, <laughs> which is the current yep. buzzword um, of, of data that we can then go into. Um, and, and so I think um, what we've had to then become, um, as Val was alluding to, is far more digital as a PMO where previously we were still turning data into information, but we weren't necessarily using computers and algorithms and software to convert this historical data into what it means going forward. Um, so yeah, I, I, that, that's what I'd add to it, Val. Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting space because it, it kind of combines a whole bunch of other departments as well. So it's almost like the organization needs to look at itself again, but someone needs to set the structure of the PMO and it can't be done in isolation. It's, it's got to be something of some sort of collaboration level. And the great thing is the Project Controls Expo, which we were all talking, is one one avenue. Yeah. This podcast is another avenue. We can get these ideas out and maybe stir some discussion because we need to have um, logical debates about this. Do we do we take on more of the um, data warehousing side of things? Because I've always had this conversation. We've, we've talked to Carolyn and a few other people where they say, well, IT's, its own thing. PMO is a critical friend to the business, and that's a great way of thinking about it. I love that 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 analogy of it. But you know, you've got to admit, that when, when what point do you concede that it's not really IT's job to look after data? It's maybe their job to look at some of the um, back-end infrastructure, uh, and then IT also needs to let go a little bit as well from the strategic side of things because when it comes to transformation, usually IT was kind of gifted with the responsibility of a system or an architecture plan going into the future and it's some real challenging pinch points around who owns what where and how and that seems to be a lot of the problems on projects is like how do you get roles and responsibilities lined up getting people accountable for their piece of work and the, and the large trouble is that a lot of people don't really know where the crossovers are there's a lot of overlap and i'm not really sure what the solution is but but maybe you can shed some light on that marco your view for, for, look for me for me the the, the point is very simple and Fortunately or unfortunately, because that's then opinion, I think the, there are quite clear, uh, especially when it comes to IT and, and let's say um, architecture against then what this architecture is used for, that the roles and responsibility are, are, for me at least, are quite clear. Because IT is basically taking what the PMO, I, I say PMO, but whoever is, uh, is then using the data or needs the data and should translate the requirements into an architecture. Before, this was not the case. And still, some people have trouble <laughs> in letting this, this happen. But for me, the point is simple. If you have a PMO or somebody which knows exactly what the data they need and in what format and for what purpose, IT becomes then a sort of a uh, we, I mean, the, the, the person which, uh, which uses the data is then the stakeholder and IT should actually do the framework in order to provide the data in the way it has been given. Yeah. The problem is, if you ask me, and this comes now a little bit in the bed of the PMO, is many times the people which should know what, what data they actually need and in which format does, don't really know what they want. And that's when they start, and no, it, let's, be, let's be completely honest. And that's where, obviously, when you have on the other side, uh, 
um, some uh, some IT person which is uh, which is really clever, you know, and give some suggestion, and that's where the two things start to blur, and you get certain data which are not said are actually the ones that you really need, and it's not the fault of of any of them, but I see it more and more people which have no. I mean, when I want to know certain things, I know exactly what type of data I want. I know exactly how the, I want them. And then I convey this message and they get the specialist, obviously, because certain things I can't do myself, to give me this data. But many times you can see people just saying, you know, remaining a little bit more vague. I need the, the KPIs. Mm. <laughs> and, then, and, then, uh, and then let the other one decide what the KPIs are. And that, that's where the problem comes in. Now, without joking. Yeah. The more people in the PMO especially know what they need and they should know, that's my personal opinion, the more this problem is going to be solved because I still believe that the IT person doesn't really like to, to come out with you know, the information that he wants. He would be much more comfortable in knowing, I want A, B, C, and they want it in this format. Please give me the architecture. Mm. That's, that's right. That's right, exactly. So that's, I think, where, again, the PMO needs a little bit more, um, I don't know how to put this in a, in a very mild form, but needs to become much more professional, in a sense, and knowing what he wants to make sure. It's also accountability, let's be honest, because if you are very specific and for any reason then the data are not correct, obviously you are the one which asked for the wrong ones. If it remains a little bit more in the gray area, then it's easier to, to become a Teflon shoulder, as we say in Italy, uh, you know, and let it just go yeah. <laughs> and blaming somebody else if the data is not exactly the correct one. Yeah. Yeah. Does it, um, I'm going to, I'm very honest now. Eh? I mean, it's, it's just, no, of uh, course. that's what we want, mate. We want, we want honesty. Honesty is the best policy. So with regard to PMO then, and you mentioned it a little bit before you touched on education and, and there is a gap. I think I'm acknowledging that there's a gap in understanding how to develop a PMO. Like if I wanted to go out, Marco, and become a PMO manager, where would I start? Is, is there an open platform for these guys to, to learn that succession? It seems to me that you kind of either go up through the engineering route or through a finance route or project controls route. But I'm not sure if there's an actual course. There's not coursework built around PMO. It's almost like you've got to grab one of the components and be good at it and then learn the rest on the go. Is that your experience of, of getting into PMO? That, that, that's exactly what it is. Because remember also how the PMO started. It was not something... I mean, if you look back, you know, when you started to have the first PMOs before actually every company decided that they needed the PMO, independent if they really needed one or not, um, but when it started, it was r literally basically having some people giving a help to the troubled project. And normally you would put one or two people very experienced, which could, you know, help the project. That was actually mm. the start of the PMO. And then naturally, because it never was a sort of a, of a route or, you know, something that you can study in a sense, also because it's, it's so broad that it would be very difficult, to be honest, to, to have, you know, a PMO. Um, it just developed in this way where now you have, uh, you know, uh, engineering route, project management route, project control, finance, even risk route. And that's mm -hmm. when, depending on how your career goes, you can end up in being in the PMO or, or not. 
I think there is the gap. I think the challenge is not even, there is a gap, but there is also a big challenge. We are talking about topics that you cannot be an expert in everything. Okay. And that's why the PMO, the, the successful PMO normally have, you know, a sort of representative for the different key areas in order to make sure that all the knowledge is within the PMO, but shared be, between the specialists. Yeah. I still believe that sometimes the specialist coming into the PMO has a big gap of seeing the big picture. So he's still more into the details, whereas the PMO has a much more strategic reach. And it's not automatic when you, even if you are a brilliant and one of the best engineers or project directors in the world, I still it's not said, let's say it's not automatic that you can, you know, that you can perform at the, in the PMO because it's just a complete different way of looking at the thing. It's more on strategic level. It's not anymore just, you know, the project, you have a budget, you have a time, you know exactly what you have to do. You have to manage the client, to manage the, the you know, the claims. Here now it becomes more also what, what should I actually do knowing what is the best for a project to make sure that the business benefits of it, because that's what the PMO is. So it's mm. not only project. Project needs to benefit from the PMO, of course, no doubt. But the PMO, because it costs money to a company, and let's be honest, in theory, if you have the correct people, the, the correct team, uh, I mean, the pe project people in the team, you should not need the PMO. If they yeah. do their job, they will deliver, and that's it. So the PMO comes in because the company needs now a, a higher level to be able to report to their stakeholders, to report, uh, you know, in, uh, on, a different, uh, on a different level, different projects, different business units, different, different types. And that's where I'm saying that it's not said or immediate that somebody brilliant in the project will, you know, morph into this PMO view uh, just like that. <laughs> that's where the gap is, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I'm, no, I'm, laugh I'm laughing there, Val, because um, as Marco's talking, I'm going, okay, so companies that need a PMO means that their project management is shit. <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> Now, yes and no. No, 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 you are absolutely right. I mean, don't get me wrong. If you have if you have a company which is driven by projects and that's it. So classical PNL of the company is coming from the singular PNL for of the of the project. If you have the project management team, and I put everybody inside, their site manager, project manager, project director, cost controller, risk and everything, and they are doing what they need to do you would not need it. Probably you would need just somebody for, as we said before, for, the, for, you know, for putting together the, the reports of all the projects when it goes up, but that's about it. You need a very standard, small thing just to make sure that you have the information. I think the problem is that <laughs> because you will never have the A-team, let's be honest, in all the projects that you have, that's where obviously there is a need of a PMO which can come in and on one side help the B team or the C team or the D team, depending on how many projects you are running, and make sure that you bring them up on the same level. But because nowadays there is quite an incredible number 
<laughs> that's that's where the strategic thinking of the PMO comes in because it's not just gathering the data because otherwise we could use something automated yeah, and, I, and that's I, it. I, I see what you're saying. So the demand is far greater than the supply and so you do need additional hits. I was being facetious, obviously, and you know. I, I know, I know, and that's fine. <laughs> but, but, but at the end of the day, I must admit, when you said it, I was just thinking, I would say, well, actually, it's true what you're saying, but it's also true that's that's natural because yeah, yeah. you know it, it's you would never have hundred percent of high performer or hundred percent of uh, everybody's really great. You will always have people which are great in one thing and uh, are lacking on the other thing. So depending, mm. that's where the PMO should actually come in and try to to merge the gaps. So does that mean in, by that rationale then we should have less PMOs and better project teams? If you ask me, yes, to be honest. So my point here is, it's not that you should have less PMO. You should have more project teams doing, you know, making sure that they are high performing, giving them the tools to high perform. And then you could actually reduce your PMO in terms of numbers just to to the core that you need for the specific business which can still give you the added value. So I'm not saying it should not be there, but for sure, yeah. if you, you know, that. Yeah, I think, I think I get what you're saying. So I think actually what you're saying is you could make, you can make PMO more efficient in regards Absolutely. to their rationale, the ratio between PMO and projects. You could make them smaller and more efficient if the project teams selected were more efficient or effective. And, and I guess that's, that's the interesting balance, isn't it? So what is the right number and structure and, and I guess what what is the core role of the PMO? And I I hear what you're saying. It's it's more of a strategic level now. And I guess the best word I have for PMO is is like it's the integrator because there's a lot of stuff that yep. uh, people don't realize PMO do. And one of the things they do is they separate the climate. One of the things they do effectively actually is they separate the climate between the pro- some of the project teams, maybe not um, on rail, but other projects, and the rest of the exec. And the pressures of the rest of the business to obviously make that project perform. And I found this actually across a few PMOs. What I mean by climate is is all that um, heavy pressure from the business to make things get done generally results in rash decisions and emotive, responsive, and that reactionary kind of feeling. And it's not always a good feeling. And you want to bridge that or gap that from your actual performance teams, your project teams that are on the ground, because that that culture could affect how they perform. And I think PMO does a nice nice gap of managing teams and integrating the information and then feeding it back up to the exec team. Do you see PMOs like that in, in that regard? Uh, absolutely. That's the reason I'm saying uh, exactly what you said. So the, you, the, the, the PMO should not be too much involved in a sense of the, of the delivery portion of, of, the, of the project apart in cases where obviously you need the support, but it should be exactly what you're saying. It should be the one which actually makes the integration or the integrator between between the things, makes sure mm. that, for example, um, information are flowed between one project and the other if there is something that is needed to be known, you know, between, between, uh, between the projects, for example, and clearly also manages the stakeholder going up. That's, that's, that's what the PMO is supposed to be. I, I mean, that's what the PMO should be doing. 
And in mm. order to do that, if you do it in the correct way, you could actually have a much leaner PMO, much, much more performing, and actually probably giving also higher value, added value, because it's quite a cost, the PMO. I mean, if you look at the, at the number of people and the type of people that you have in the PMO normally, these are not, the, these are not cheap people in a sense. These are normally quite, uh, you know, quite um, experienced people. Uh, so the more lean you can get, value the better it is for the company it's a value add yeah yeah and no, i agree and i just wanted to add to that i think uh, just to that end note is that pmo in my my experience at least is very political very political and there's a lot of influencing required a lot of stakeholder management a lot of coalitions and, and alliances to get decisions right decisions made so they are like uh, carolyn says the critical friend the conscious of the project the Jiminy Cricket type role is is to you know tell the execs, are you sure you want to make that decision given the evidence we've got? You know, maybe you want to, you know, and and we do end up having these these debates and battles, if you like, with executives. So you, you talk about effectiveness and efficiency. What is a one? What are the one things that we could do? What are the top three things we could do to make PMOs more effective and efficient, from your perspective? Well, a lot, uh, now we have to, uh, to, ask, to ask first the, the first, another question before that, which is what exactly, how is actually the PMO performing within a company? Because if the PMO is performing together with the delivery, that's one thing. Mm. Uh, if the PMO is completely third party, that's completely something different. To make an example, if the PMO is in his uh, mission is actually you know, uh, supporting the delivery by giving people, for example, or managing some of the people which are uh, which are within the delivery. Obviously, you lose completely the leverage of being a third party because you get so much involved in in the project. In any case, that it becomes really difficult to then you know have a different look from outside. So, in order for me, my my personal opinion is. If the PMO, the way I see the PMO is not the one which is involved in the delivery, so it's more a sort of a, of a third party, obviously partner, but third party. And therefore, in order to make sure that we can become more efficient, we should ensure that the, the, the PMO has, gives, or has the power, sorry, to give what are the informations which are needed and how the information have to flow. Because each time, uh, you know better than me, when I was project director, my project was, was, I was the king of the project. Nothing was going out without me knowing. And I was, I'm not saying I was filtering the information, but for sure on in certain occasions, I was filtering certain information which were going upwards because I needed to do, you know, certain things before actually they were going, they were going out. Now, the PMO has a, has a mission and the mission is as I said, ensure that highlight or flag troubled pro projects, highlight if there are performance issues in cost, schedule, risk, whatever it is, um, make sure that there is an integration or a flow of information and at the same time report, uh, let's say, higher or to the, to, the, to the higher stakeholders. So when you look at this, to be honest, for me, you should make clear what the mission is of the PMO. For me, each time what I've seen of PMO, at least for my experience, I've never really seen a sort of a clear-cut mission of what actually the PMO is supposed to be doing. 
it's always some sort of a work instruction, some sort of process. But there is not, you know, you, you know what I mean? Something which says your mission is, I don't know, go into the trouble project and solve them. That would give you a clear cut, tells you how to set up the PMO, tells also what your powers are in order to do that. When this is missing, well, you start to go everywhere, you start to need more people, you start to be involved in you know, all sorts of things. Are they really PMO? Sometimes not, sometimes it's a gray area. And that's mm. where the inefficiency comes in. So, so, yeah. So if I play that back, Marco, so you're saying that uh, for you, a PMO is a organizational business function not necessarily something that resides on a project or a program that is that is something else that is project controls or planning or risk individually maybe collectively they're supplied by the pmo but you're not you're saying that isn't a pmo specifically they belong to the pmo but they're not pmo specific okay correct um and, and that's interesting because obviously as we all know you people do refer to PMOs on a project or PMOs on, on a program. Um, and I think what we've kind of been discussing is that the jury is still out there. There's no education. There's no definition on exactly what a PMO really is. Um, and, and, and so that's, a, that's an interesting view to have. And, you know, people listening to this probably go, okay, well, if that is the case, then how do we then, when it comes to execution, when you go down into the drop down into the project level or program level, even um, how do you, those let's call them silos planning controls risk how does that come together does it fall under controls then or are they still individuals that kind of just have to work together no hold on project so that that that's now two different things so in the in the in the once you are in execution you have obviously project control is the one which should at least it says the term project control <laughs> make sure no but it makes sure that planning cost risk uh, you know um changes yep. uh, governance, everything yep. governance control etc yep. et all comes under or is under control yep. recorded and they talk together you know make sure that what the pmo should be doing before and that's where I'm so passionate about setting the projects correct before you start to execute them. Because what the PMO should actually say is, okay, you need, when you start this type of project, you need, for example, this type of organization chart where you have your project control person, you have your planning. Uh, you need to have uh, your, um, you know, your um, execution strategy. You need to have your governance and control. You need to have your change control processes. Now, clearly here we are now touching things which are normally also, I mean, if it's a company which is running since some time, so it's not a new company, obviously you will have these processes already there. Mm-hmm. But my point is, there is a sort of a control function of the PMO, which is not the project control, eh? yeah. it's a control function of the PMO, which ensures, and that's one of, my opinion is, it's one of the core job of the PMO for the projects in execution, which is make sure that everything which is process of the company for the project itself is done and done correctly. Because, look, I mean, I can tell you many times project fails because the setup is not correct from the beginning. You don't have the right 
processes. You know, everybody says, oh, we have a project execution strategy and there is written everything. And then you go into the project execution strategy document and you find things and you say, well, how should I do that? Oh, you refer back to the, <laughs> to the process which is in the, in the company. And that's where you start to fail because in theory, I mean, there should be a process for the PMO which says each time that you have a project which lands, so it becomes execution, there are certain, you know, the gates part, for example. That's one of the functions of the PMO is make sure that the gates are, are checked before yeah. even the gate happens to make sure that they, that, they, that they are passed in the correct way. So you see, for me, the function of, of the PMO, of course, it goes into the, into the delivery in a sense because it ensures that the process are the correct ones for the delivery to deliver the project to make sure that the control functions are correctly set made to, for success. Um, but it's not the PMO itself which then goes into the delivery part and then in, you know, makes this happen. So PMO at the beginning is the, is the generator of the processes because that's another part. So here we have to make obviously a distinction if you have a company which is an old company which has already all the processes in place or you are a newer company where some of the processes are missing. But let's say the PMO is the one which actually makes sure that these processes are always up to date. Make sure that if there is changes, you know, in the in the structure of the company, the processes are still applicable. So that when you go into execution, PMO says these are the processes. You have to do A, B, C, D, and then it checks that it's done and flags when there is a problem. So you see why I see I say that the PMO doesn't need to have twenty thousand people in a sense, but is obviously on a on a slighter on a slight higher level than the higher level, not in the sense of hierarchy, a higher level in the sense of what they are looking at compared yeah. to actually what the project is. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I get that. And uh, thanks for clarifying because it's one of those things that I think, you know, Val and I will agree violently with you um, with what you just said. Um, it's just those out there, I think it's not that clear for them. And so it's great that you, you clear that up. Um, but you alluded to you know, good, bad, and ugly. Um, and one, one of the, I don't know if this is bad or if it's ugly, but one of the things, as you say, is, you know, you go to the, the execution strategy and it says, oh, reference this process. Um, but some of the ugly I've come across in, in, in my career is when you kind of go to someone and you say, well, why do you do something like this? And they go, well, that's the process. And I say, okay, can you give me the process documentation? And they go, there isn't any <laughs> exactly <laughs> yes <laughs> is that bad or is it ugly I'm, I'm not sure um but for me an example of the difference between bad and ugly bad is when people don't know and you know they're, they're, they're trying to make it up that's bad but i think ugly is when they know yet they still try and do something that's wrong out of governance out of process that's that's ugly and i think we've all seen it in various ways shapes and forms um val you cited experiences where you know you wouldn't sign off a, a risk register um you know because you were gazumped that to me is ugly that's not bad bad is like when you kind of just don't know and you should ugly is when you know yet you still continue to do, do it the wrong way but at least for that, I uh, for here yeah, just on that one. I at least I said I did say no, and and you know that that did um, stop from happening to some degree. Um, I think we did talk about that. Which episode was that? 
I can't I remember. Was it, I think it was in season one. It's in one of the episodes, yeah. but but yeah, have to go fishing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll set uh, we'll set a, a, a egg hunt, an Easter egg hunt for uh, the listeners, and go go find us and t- tell us which episode we spoke about that one on. <laughs> <laughs> but Dale, you are touching a very important point because again, that's where the PMO normally is the. I, I can't really say the first line, but at least the second line of, um, um, I call it the making sure that the things are, are done in the proper way. So for me, the ugly, and I'm going to be much more clear than you, is when people, so there is a process or there is a, a, you know, a work instruction or there is something which everybody knows that should be done in that way and people are just not doing it for whatever reason. It can be because they want to look nicer, they want to look better, or just because plain laziness. Whatever the case might be, that's for me the ugly part. Now, in theory, again, if the PMO is set up in in the correct way and is doing what it should be doing, it should not be possible for people to do the ugly part. So you, you could confine, actually, and that's where, you know, you could actually gain quite some... Uh, some uh, efficiency, removing the ugly, you will just have the bad because this will remain because people will not know. You will, you know, you will always have something which doesn't go, not because intentionally done, but because of really not knowing it. But that's where normally the PMO should be, should be flagging out this type of, I can't say behaviors, but let, let forget about the behavior one second, but the outcome of an ugly part, okay, should actually be completely catched by the process or by the PMO if he's doing the sort of uh, overlooking the different projects. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And, and and actually, I think you're right to bring in behavior. I think you're absolutely spot on because I think that's where ugly comes in when there's the wrong yeah. behaviors. Um, yes. You know, as you say, you might have the processes in place. So, so bad might be that you don't have the processes in place, but the ugly yes. might be you've got them in place you know, and, and people, you choose to do something else. Correct. And I don't know how we change that as well. Um, from a PMO perspective, as you say, um, we can try and install, we can um, say no as Val and I, and you have, I, I know we all have in, in, in our various areas when we, we, you know, when we disagree or don't believe things should be done in a certain way, or if it's going against, you know, company protocol processes that are written down and documented. <laughs> so, you can only do so much sometimes, um, but it's systemic though throughout an organization because um, if, 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 if behavior stem from the top um, and, and those are set, it's really difficult to change the culture. Really, really difficult. Um, I don't know if there's yeah. perhaps some industries that are better at this than others. Val, did you want to come in there? I'm just, yeah, I, was, I, I dropped out a little bit there, so I picked up half the conversation. Uh, there is there is a role for culture, and I think I'm I'm not sure if it's PMO's remit to do that, but it's certainly part of their role to be part of a culture fit and a culture movement. Um, but you've got to get the culture right. And we spoke to um, Colin Colin Ellis around why culture was so important to projects, and it's quite frankly, it's not quite fixed yet. And depending on the project pressures, uh, it can bring out the worst in people, which is which is what can really limit the performance of a project. Is is just a, one or two bad apples. Um, with the wrong behavior sets and not being reprimanded for those behavior sets can 
can destroy teams and really cause angst and um, problems within the project accuracy. But I actually think what we're finding now is is the opportunity, I think, for a role. Now, you would say, well, wh- who organizes and supports people? Well, traditionally, it was HR. But we all know that you know HR's role has changed significantly, I think. It's probably one of the biggest changes in, in the organization. If you look at where they started, or where, at least from my experience, to where they are now, they're almost a, and I don't mean to offend anyone who's from HR, but they're almost a, um, a non-significant entrant. So you know they're there, but they kind of work in the background, a bit like IT. There's still a requirement because there's obviously onboarding and all recruitment and, and there's a learning and development fashion now that's kind of you know, secular to that. But the culture itself, I, I think um, you'll see in at least a lot of the startups, they'll have chief, chief heart officers. Now, I'm not all for the, you know, the soft approach. Like, you know, I, I do believe in inclusivity. I do believe in, you know, um, opportunities for people and, and supporting young people, but I also believe in developing resilience and getting people to, to do some hard work. And and so, but there's this role called a chief heart officer, which is not a bad idea. And their role is is around culture and making sure everyone feels that they're part of the team and really keeping everyone motivated. And Dale, we did this with some kind of social events and you, everyone's got kind of someone in the team that takes on that chief role hat. But that that role itself at the, probably the strategic level, Marco, would be really, really helpful. Someone who's sponsored by the, by the exec, who's chartered and has a role specifically for managing the culture of people and between departments as well, where we see a lot of uh, conflict sometimes. Well, I mean, the behavior or the, the, you know, the company, I think the behavior is driven, is always driven by the top. Uh, I, you see, you can have some, some bad behaviors in, in the project, on the project level. That's, that, that's part of the game. You will have always different type of people. But I think the true behavior or, the, you know, the, the, the company culture in a sense, this is something which is driven by the, by the very top. There is no other way. So the PMO is part of it. But PMO, I'm sorry to say, will never be able to, to make a big cultural change or behavioral change of the people if this, as you said, is not sponsored from the, from the... I mean, imagine that each time that you want to make a change, uh, you know, there are different frameworks. One is the Cotta framework. One of the things in the second step, it says, by the way, you need to have the sponsorship from the, from the very top if you want to make a change. Correct. And the yeah, same is right. also for the, for, the, um, for the behavior part and for the culture, because let's be honest, if you are... Look, the behavior of the people at, in the projects, uh, and now again, I'm going very, <laughs> to be very blunt, normally comes because of the behavior of the people higher on the, on the ladder. Why? Because if I go in a, in a review, just make an example, okay? And you have a delay. This delay is due to something which obviously probably was unexpected, but you have it under control in a sense that you still have a delay, but you have it, you know, you have your risk provision, you have done all the correct steps. But you go in this review and you are trashed because you have a delay. Human nature says that next time I'm not going to be trashed again and I will find every possible way to make sure that they come to you and they say everything's perfectly fine. And that's where the crack starts to come in. So if you are promoting a culture where, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that you just have to, to swallow everything that comes, eh? but my point is, if you are promoting a culture of 
transparency and openness of information and then looking at what needs to be done probably you will also solve some of the issues of the behaviors in the in the in the um, in the project teams i've seen this quite a lot and i can tell you i've seen both sides and in one case people actually were coming into the reviews and were just saying look we have this problem it's under control i mean you're a professional so it's under control this is what we are doing and actually even asking help on certain things from you know from the from the senior management and they have also examples on the other way where people were actually basically trashed or fired because of something stupid and that's when obviously people were che- i mean cheating were just coming and making sure that you know they were survived the day so unfortunately i believe i strongly believe that <laughs> that pmo cannot really influence i mean they, it can obviously trigger or show that there is a problem which somebody needs then to make sure to change because we can flag as a pmo you know that this is not happening or this is not working or the performance is poor but then translating this into the behavior i can't really see a pmo having any grip in a sense yeah. on being able to change it yeah I, i agree i think for for me my view is it's in our circle of influence but not in our circle of control we can't Absolutely. control the behaviors we can as you say we can influence it indirectly by flagging it perhaps um but we we can't control the behaviors we can certainly within the pmo if we pmo leaders or sure. leaders in the pmo we can control pmo behaviors but it's really difficult to to control behaviors um from other departments but you know we've spoken a lot about um some of the bad and some of the ugly but it's not all bad and ugly no, there's some there's some good as well um, of course and and you know when it when it goes well um it, it's it's really great a great place to be i mean if there wasn't any good i don't know if any of us would be in the pmo space um, no. no don't get me wrong i mean i i think the pmo is doing a brilliant job in a very difficult environment so I still believe that it's bringing value quite quite a lot of value uh <laughs> and working in in a very very difficult environment in a sense that you know sometimes you really have to to fight your way to make sure that the things are done properly but my point here is actually we could do much more than what we are currently being able to deliver as an added value Yeah. if we could you know address some of the things that we just talked because the pmo is an incredible value the problem is that we are we are still in a phase where we are not using it 100% um and and that's where it's the pity because it, it would be a tremendous value if it would be used at its full uh, um, capacity yeah i i think i agree with you and I, i think i'll turn that around and say i think that's actually the good part of it that for me is that because there's so much opportunity still so much growth area in the pmo and that's where i think actually all three of us come in and go that that is the great part where we want to be involved we want to be at the forefront of making things happen bringing it together um improving you know the pmo space spreading the word as we are on on, on this podcast and speaking at the you know the controls expos and etc um and sharing the knowledge because um at the end of the day there's, there's no point in just keeping it all to ourselves is there um so yeah but anyway um i, I i'm going to hand to val for the kind of final few uh, remarks questions opinions as we kind of head towards the end of the pod
Yeah, thanks, Dale and Marco. Uh, I, I would kind of roll off, just roll back slightly to the behavior thing. So I, I kind of think, I was just thinking about it while we we're talking about it. And yeah, it, it, it is a role and it does need sponsorship and it's not the remit of the PMO, but it, I think it's a bit like safety in a way that it's everybody's responsibility. And yeah. one of the things I've seen that's really torn teams apart and affected project performance is this thing called psychological safety and having having that contract with your immediate manager and having that trust because without trust, you know, the project can quickly um, un, you know, unravel and you'll find that departments will then become a bit tribal in a way and protect their own. But when it comes to PMO, they'll be like, you guys are, you know, you're the police or there's other terminologies that has been used to describe PMOs. And obviously PMOs, as a critical friend, are trying to do one or two things. They're trying to serve their masters, which happen to be the executives, and get them what they need as and when they need it but also then nurture some of these teams and bring them up to a, the right level, which is what we're talking about. So whilst I don't think PMO is in charge of behavior, I think they're a facilitator of that um, psychological safety and they, they need to encourage it. And it's probably incumbent on all leaders in, in all departments to take that responsibility. And actually, if you are in a project right now and you're listening to this and you feel like you can't actually say what you want to say, then you need to have that discussion with your management and your team. And if there's still no change, I think you need to consider whether that's the right project for you because I've seen a lot of really competent, good people be uh, pushed and, and almost bullied in a way, I guess, if you want to call it that. Not to leave with a negative note, but just just a, a bit of an awareness note that you, you should be standing up. And there's a thing called moral leadership. I won't get into the detail of what that is. Basically, it's doing the right thing when no one's looking or when no one will. And I think more people should be doing that. And I, th- I know you guys are a big advocates for that kind of style. Um, but that was the behavior bit. And, and just on the, on the PMO in itself, I think we've, we've spoken a lot about the good things. One of the things I think is fantastic about it, especially for someone with ADD or ADHD, is that you are insatiably always doing something new. There's always this continuous learning loop. And the fascination for me, I think the addiction for me, because I think it's an obsession if you're in PMO, is turning chaos into order. So you come in. And you almost expect you almost expect it to be a mess when you're in a PMO. If you're going into a project for the first time, you're like, right, show me where we're all at. And there's always some area that requires immediate attention as there's just a mess. Now it might be processes, it might be the way they govern the projects, it might be how they plan, it might be how they manage costs, it might be how they do earn value, but there's always some bit, maybe it's all bits, but there's some bit that you can just get your teeth stuck into. And it's so diverse that you know, for people like me, and I think I'm sure Dale and, and maybe you as well, Marco, that you know, you could you could spend a lifetime. We well do actually on various projects, cleaning them up and fixing them and making them better, and then leaving them better than they were before you got there. I think that's a great kind of legacy item as well. There's a lot of contribution feelings, like you feel like your job has purpose and meaning. So for those that are excited or interested in PMO, there's a lot of value in doing all these different types of things, and and necess- you can't be an expert, as you said but you can certainly get a taste for schedule, cost, risk, change, governance, quality assurance, politics, whatever you like. There's a little bit for everyone, isn't there? Well, I just say one, one last thing. I think being in the PMO is, and, and that's the reason why I find it quite interesting and exciting to be there, is because it's like you are in a sort of a position, like a CEO position. Let me, let me pass this. Why? Because you are getting to see not only, you know, one side like delivery or the project delivery, but you are also looking at the more strategic 
you're looking at the people, you're looking at the trainings, you're looking, you know, you're looking 360 degree within the company. And I think mm. it's it's one of the few places, apart when you are completely in charge of the company, you can do whatever you want, <laughs> but it's one of the few places where the opportunities are so high that actually you can still bring a piece of you inside. So you're not going mm. into an environment like a project where everything is already set or should be set. You are really somewhere where you can put your impromptu. And, and that's what I think is still exciting because you normally don't have this in other, in other, uh, in other departments. Yeah, no, that's fantastic, Marco. I, uh, you know, it's, it, it resonates with me, both of you, what, what you said then. And um, it, it's the reason we, as I say, we, we're still part of, you know, part of PMO and, and why we still continue to, to work in the spaces we do. Um, but, but as we look to, to kind of round up the pod, um, I just want to thank you again, Marco, for your time. It's been great. Um, I love this. We, we did promise or we, we said we'd get you back for another pod and I'm so glad we managed to do that. Um, as always, you your, <laughs> your, 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 your views and your opinions are, are are greatly appreciated and I'm, I'm sure those that are listening to it will will gain a lot from it as well um but i just want to come to you for any final words you want to leave us with marco uh no i think we we need more people to to actually get into pmo and bring you know more and more uh knowledge sharing knowledge and i think you know this this pod uh the the project control expo and so on i think we need to become even more a community share you know share the knowledge because the more we share, we will just rise the bar. And the more mm. people come in with you know, new ideas, you know, new ways of looking at the things, the more the PMO will become valuable and bringing added value. Agreed, agreed. Thanks very much. And yeah, you can be Italian, South African, or Australian. You can be in the PMO. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Val, any final thoughts from you? No, I actually think the more diverse, the better. So, yeah, we'll get an Irishman in next uh, or a Scottishman. Um, no, it's a pleasure, Marco, as usual. It's it's great to have people like yourself who are so passionate about the craft and are sharing openly and, and can come back. And, and obviously, we'd love to have you back again at some point. But, but thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Well, folks, that's all we have time for on this episode, but it doesn't have to stop here. Pay it forward and head over to our charity shop and get yourself some gear. All profits go to charity and you'll be helping our children in desperate need of fair opportunities and education. Subscribe via our website and you'll get a link to our online community where you can chat directly to Val, myself, our expert guests like Marco and other community members. For more information, blogs and previous podcasts, check out projectchatterpodcast.com. A big thanks to our guest, Professor Marco Fresenda. A massive thank you to Val as always and thank you all for listening. Till next time, we say stay safe, be disruptive and have fun doing it. It's bye for now. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individual's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. Additionally, any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual.